All right, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now, whether you're here or online, and go to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31, uh, again, in the room, would love for you to have that Bible up, even on your phone, just so you can see uh, what the Word of God has to say to you tonight as we continue our teaching series through the book of Isaiah. Hey, here's what I'm convinced of. <laughs> here's what I'm convinced of. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit of God has something for us tonight, and I think God wants to speak through his word to his people tonight. Uh, and yet this is one of those texts in the Bible that I think you can read and, and find something wonderful in, uh, but I think you'll actually be encouraged more by the text if you can kind of understand the context around it. Um, and so here's what I want to do as we jump into Isaiah chapter 31, uh, is I want to go, before we even get to the text, I want to just give you what I'm going to call a brief history uh, of ancient Israel. Well, let me just give you a brief history of the ancient uh, Isra- the Israelite people. Well, let me give you a brief history, really, of the Old Testament. Uh, and so here's what's going to happen in Old Testament history. The most significant and foundational event in Old Testament history is the exodus from Egypt. And so in 1446 BC, the nation of Israel is rescued from Egypt out of slavery. So this is the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus. You watch the prince of Egypt as a kid. That's the story, right? The people are released. They're freed. And God pulls his nation up out of Egypt. And then they spend 40 years in the desert. And then 1406 BC, the nation of Israel enters into the promised land. Now they enter into the promised land and their first thought is we should set up a kingdom with a king. And God goes, don't have a king. It won't go well for you at all. And the people are like, we'd really like a king. And God says, no, please don't have a king. Don't do the king thing. It won't work out for you. And the people of God are like, we know better God. So God goes, all right, you try it out. And they try it out and they have a king and they have David and they have Solomon. And then things get kind of weird. So in 930 BC, the nation of Israel um, splits into two different kingdoms. So this gets a little confusing because one of the kingdoms is called Israel. They take the name and the others is called Judah. Okay. So these tribes of Israel who are part of this one unified nation under David and under Solomon split into two different nations. So when you're reading the old Testament and you hear about Israel, the nation of their kingdom of Israel, you're hearing about the Northern kingdom, the Northern tribes. And when you hear in the new, in the old Testament about the nation of Judah, those are the Southern tribes when these two tribes split. And here's what you need to know the Israel rebels entirely against Yahweh. Like the northern tribes are a disaster. They're basically like, God, you know how you said no idols? And God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, we're going to make some idols. He's like, don't do that. And they're like, we're going to do it. And then it's like some invading army comes and destroys them. That's what happens. They rebel completely, entirely against Yahweh. But then Judah, the southern kingdom, remains somewhat faithful. Like there's just a little bit of faithfulness that happens in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God God sees Israel, this northern kingdom, and their complete disobedience and rebellion against him. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian army, destroys the northern kingdom of Israel. They just come in and wipe it out. And it's abundantly clear in the text that this is actually God's judgment upon the people. He goes, listen, this army, I I would protect you against it, but I'm going to allow them to destroy you, to discipline you. This is my judgment upon you. And then here's the next thing, the last one. They'll set up the context of this entire sermon. 701 BC, the Assyrian Empire now sets their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Uh, Assyria comes in and they destroy the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom of Judah is watching this and they go, oh no, they destroyed the northern kingdom. They went back to Assyria and then they decided it's time to march on Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is the story that's being set up today. And here's one of the coolest things about this story. Um, Sometimes people think the Bible's a myth. 
or they think it's made up or some fairy tale or some story. The, the coolest thing about the story we're going to look at tonight that Isaiah 31 is pointing us and referencing us toward, it's actually, you'll see this little picture right here. Um, this is an ancient, it's called one of the prisms of Assyria, and it's written in this ancient kind of clay form, and it tells the entire story we're about to tell today. It tells the entire story. It's not from the Bible, but it corroborates the Bible. So to the person who gets up in your face and says the Bible is a bunch of made-up stories, remind them that ancient, 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 ancient sources like this, when archaeologists dig this up, they always end up going, actually, the Bible was kind of right. That's what happens. So this is the story we're going to look at today. And again, you can read it on this ancient tablet, or you can read it in Isaiah 31 and other places we're going to go. But here's the scene I want to set up for you. They're in Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, and the Assyrian army begins marching on them. So this is one artist's rendering of it. It's not perfect, but it's like they're inside the city, and the army marches on them. Now, you may think the army is just like a couple hundred people. According to the text, it's hundreds of thousands of troops are camped out outside side of Jerusalem. In fact, they're using siege warfare that we're even seeing right now in Ukraine, right? They're using siege warfare that says we will surround the city until they surrender or die. That's what's happening. That's the context of the chapter of Isaiah that we're about to read today. And here's why I think this matters. Here's the people of Israel, pardon me, the people of Judah, looking at this army that's just destroyed their northern counterparts. They are terrified because the Assyrians are terrifying. Here's what I want you to know. The, the ancient empire of Assyria was described by one historian as nothing short of a terrorist state. What they would do is they would come into places they conquered and they would brutalize the population. It was one of the most brutal empires that ever existed in the history of the world. They, they would come into a place and they would kill everyone in the family except one person, the father, and they would keep the father alive. And what they would do is they would cut off his legs, both of them, and his left arm. And then as he's laying there on the ground, they would take his right arm and shake it in congratulation of his defeat. They would take families and they would come into a different family and cut off the father's head and then put it on a pole and make the children walk through the street with their father's head upon a pole. They, they would burn adolescents and teenagers alive. They tortured and they killed for fun. They were a brutal and merciless people and hundreds of thousands of their soldiers were standing at the gate of Jerusalem. This is a terrifying moment. This is an overwhelming moment. It is a helpless moment where the people of Judah don't know what to do. And tonight, I want to answer a very simple question through Isaiah 31, and it's this question. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you're not quite sure what to do next? What do you do when things in your life and your world have gotten complicated and difficult and you don't know what you're supposed to do? What do you do when there is more month at the end of the money when it runs out? What, what do you do when you're not sure you'll be able to pay your bills or keep your job? What do you do when things are falling apart in your family? What do you do when things are falling apart in your friendships? What do you do when things get so complicated with your boyfriend or your girlfriend that you're just at a loss? What do you do when your body starts to shut down on you? What do you do when the diagnosis says cancer? What do you do when things are overwhelming and difficult in any space of your life? What do you do when you don't know what to do? See, tonight I'm convinced of this, that many of you are fighting down, staring down a battle that's coming your way in life. And I want you to see what Isaiah 31, the word of the Lord has to speak to you tonight, because I think the Lord has a word for you and I want you to hear it clearly. So it says this in Isaiah chapter 31 and verse one, it says this, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help 
who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 31 is a prophecy against the people of Judah who are sitting there watching this army march upon them. And there is a rebuke that comes in two parts. Part one of the rebuke is woe to you who go down to Egypt for help. So here's what happened. The people of Judah are being invaded by the Assyrian army and their first instinct, like the first thing they think to do is let's go south to Egypt because they are a military superpower and they can provide us with weapons to fight off the people who are coming against us. Their first instinct is let's go down to Jerusalem. But the second part of the rebuke is they did not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So what's the rebuke here? The rebuke is when you don't know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, the rebuke here is this, woe to you who go down to Egypt. In other words, woe to you who have a problem in front of you and you don't even think to turn to God for help. That's what the the rebuke is. That's what Isaiah is calling out against. And that's what we need to hear so clearly tonight. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, so many times when something goes wrong in our lives, our first instinct is let's fix this ourselves. And then if that doesn't work out, what we'll do is we'll try to get other people to use their resources to help us. And then if all else fails, I guess I'll pray and ask God about it. And it needs to be the exact opposite. So some of you have heard me share this story before, but it bears repeating. Um, When I was um, in college, I had an opportunity to study in in London uh, for a study abroad program. And it was this wonderful study abroad program and we were doing all this school and stuff, but every weekend was a three-day weekend so we could go travel. And I decided to meet up with a few of my friends who were studying in other places in Europe in the city of Rome. And so one night I get, on, or get to the airport to take the plane from London into Rome. And then I find the worst news you ever hear when you're on a plane and that's your plane has been delayed. And it's always a short delay, right? They never say it's going to be a colossal delay, right? Like it's a short delay. Okay, short delay. Well, the short delay became a longer and a longer and a not short delay. But eventually that night the plane took off. And the plane takes off, and it's not a very long flight. I land in Rome. I take a little shuttle to this hostel where I'm supposed to be staying for the night. I go into the hostel, and I just get a few hours of sleep before I need to check out and meet up with my friends that morning in the center of the heart of the city of Rome. And so I jump on a bus and I start to drive into Rome. And this is before smartphones were really a thing. So like I had a Blackberry back then, but it wasn't connected to the internet type thing. Okay. Right. Blackberry. I know. Rest in peace. Right. But, but, but this is what I had. And so I had this big map out and I'm like trying to figure out like, here's the bus route and here's Rome and here's where I am. I'm trying to figure it out. And then finally, I think I see my station. So I pulled a little cord and I have my map out and I jump out of the bus and I'm trying to figure out, I go, okay, I'm ready to the right place. And as the bus is pulling away, this occurs to me. Oh no, my backpack is on the bus. No, it gets worse, way worse. See, the one rule of traveling is this. When you have a passport, don't leave it anywhere but on your pocket, right? Like, don't leave it in your bag in case it gets stolen. So my passport and my wallet and my Blackberry that has no internet connection is in there. So I got nothing right now. Everything that is important to me in that moment is driving away. What was my first instinct in that moment? I will chase down that bus. So I start running and I'm running as hard as I can. And I very quickly discover that buses drive faster than Brian Howard can run. That's what I discover. And I don't even know what happened. Like, what if I had caught it? What do I do? Like bang on the side? Like, I don't know what the plan was. So I'm exhausted and I'm just like completely out of breath as you would be if you were chasing after a bus after no sleep, after flying in from London. And then I turn around and I go, oh, glorious. And I see these police officers 
And I'm like, perfect. I don't know what they can do, but maybe they can call it in and stop the bus or something. So I, I run over to them. I go, officers, I'm so sorry. I've been tired all night, flying, flights delayed, hostile. It's been crazy and wild. I was asleep. I pulled the thing. I got off my bus and I'm like telling them this whole story. And there's just, there's no like reception on their face. And, and then it just suddenly dawns on me that these Italian police officers speak Italian, right? (laughs) And that they're not going to be able to hear me or listen to me. So they're just like looking at me blankly. And I just remember like turning around in absolute shame. Like these guys have no idea what's going on. I can't catch up to the bus. And so I go to the bus stop across the street and I just sit on 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 this bench. And I'll never forget this moment. And it feels like a made up story. It's not a made up story. In that moment, I finally went, all right, God, I will be a permanent resident of Italy. Like, or God, I'm just going to need the next bus that comes to have my bag on it. I I don't know if I'm allowed to pray that, but I I need the bus to come back. And and so the bus pulls up and and all the buses look the same, right? So you have no idea. So I get onto the bus and I look and it's my driver. And I made eyes with him like a long lost friend who you've just like reunited. I was like, yes. And I turn and there's my backpack completely untouched. And I bring the backpack off and I fall to the ground and I'm hugging it. And I must look like a total fool. But in that moment, everything was made right. Now, why do I share that story with you? That, that story, the point, the moral of the story isn't if you're ever in a jam at a bus stop, just pray and God takes care of the schedule, right? That, that's not the point. The point is actually to point out my failure in this story because I had a problem. My bus was going that way. My backpack with all my stuff was going that way. And what was my first instinct? I will solve this problem myself. What was my second instinct? I can't solve this problem. Those people have power and they can help me, right? And then what was my final instinct? My final instinct was all else has failed. I'll guess I turn to God. And children of God, may that never be true of our lives. In a silly and ridiculous story like this, perhaps it may be true, but God used that story to remind me constantly of this, that when trouble comes, prayer should be our first reaction, not our last resort. It should be the first thing our hearts move toward. It should be something's wrong in my family, I'm gonna pray. Something's going on in my health and the test is out and I don't even know what it's gonna be. Before I go to the Google machine and research everything on WebMD, I'm gonna pray about this. Right, right, right. When something goes wrong, when something goes down, when you're trying to solve a complicated situation, do not let prayer be the thing you do. Oh gosh, I guess we should pray. Let it be your first reaction, not your last resort. Uh, again, I don't know everyone's story in this room, but if you're walking through trouble right now, something in your family, something with your health, with your finances, with your school. Can I give you a checklist for your time of trouble? Let me give you a checklist, three questions to ask yourself. Number one, have I prayed about it? Like, have I actually prayed about it? And sometimes have I prayed about it? It's like, hey, God, if you help me with that, that'd be great. No, 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 no. Like, have you actually gone for a 45-minute prayer walk where all you do is just call upon the name of the Lord for the thing you're walking through? But like, have you prayed about it? Have you gotten on your face before the Lord? Have you made it the first thing you talk to God about? The last thing before you go to bed, have you prayed about it? Second question, have I fasted about it? Like we've talked about prayer and fasting here in this room. And we believe those things go together for a reason in the Bible. In fact, when the people of God are in crisis, it'll say it so subtly in the scriptures. And the people call to fast and blah, 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 blah. It's so subtle, but don't miss it. Like, have I fasted about it? Have I spent time not consuming food? Have I spent time actually stepping away from those things that my heart might be sensitive to the spirit? Have I prayed about it? Have I fasted about it? And finally, have I asked others to pray and fast with me? Would you be bold enough to ask someone to fast with you? 
Would you be bold enough just to say, hey, listen, I'm walking through it right now, and I need you to intercede for me. I need you to call upon the name of the Lord with me. You know why we don't do that? It's because we're too proud to. The the reason I don't want to ask you to pray for me is because I want you to think I got it together. Can I confess tonight? I don't have it together. I don't. I'm not perfect. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. And neither are you. Ask people to pray with you. Ask people to fast with you. Say, hey, next Wednesday, um, I'm going to be fasting for this specific thing. Would you join in with me? And if you can't fast the whole day, would you just commit time? Maybe would you fast a meal? Would you be in this thing with me? If you have people in your life who are your people, your small group, your Bible study, your group chat that you go to, that you have pinned to the top of your phone, right? Like those people, ask them to join in you with prayer and fasting and ask them to join not just on the big things that all of us would be deeply moved by, but ask them to pray about anything that's bothering you. Why? Because when I was growing up, uh, my mom had a little sticky note stuck to the kitchen counter, uh, and it was on this cabinet, and I remember always seeing it was handwritten on a little sticky note that Nancy Howard put on, and here were the exact words she had on that sticky note. I'll never forget it. She had these words written, if it's big enough to be a worry, it's big enough to be a prayer. If it's big enough to be on my heart, if it's big enough to stress me out, if it's big enough to cause me anxiety, it's big enough for God to hear about it, and the God of heaven wants to hear about it. So be that type of person who says, have I prayed about this? Have I asked the Lord about this? Have I fasted about this? And listen, here's the resistance some of you have to some of this. That sometimes it feels like, okay, if I have like uh, cancer or if I've lost my job or if there's a big thing happening, I'll pray and fast. But I don't want to over-spiritualize the little things. Like we say this phrase, I I don't want to over-spiritualize the problem. Can I tell you that almost no one I know over-spiritualizes anything? Almost everyone I know under-spiritualizes everything. And you might be that rare person who over-spiritualizes everything. You forgot to tie your shoe. You're like, the devil got me again, right? But, But the odds are that you and I, living in the Western world that has so stripped the spiritual from everything, under spiritualize everything. We don't realize that there is actually a battle going on for our soul, that the Holy Spirit actually wants to hear us pray, and that God actually wants to move in providential ways. I want to encourage you, if you're the type of person who says, I need God to show up, that you would do so, not just on the big things, but on the little things. Can I tell you that sometimes I pray about things you would find ridiculous? I have prayed about Wi-Fi signal, okay? Like, like I have prayed about ridiculous things like traffic. Like I'm in traffic and I'm like, Lord, I just need the red seat apart here, right? Like I've prayed about it. I pray almost every night that my four-week-old would say, just, Lord, just give her four hours. Just give me four hours here, right? Like if it's big enough to be a worry, it's big enough to be a prayer. And, and so often we're so worried about like, oh, should I pray about this? Should I not? If it's on your heart, if it's on your mind, pray about it. If you've prayed about it and you still want to see breakthrough, fast about it. And if you want to see God doing something mighty in your life, humble yourself to the point where people are joining you in that prayer and fasting. It goes on this way in verse 2. It says, yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation. The wicked nation is Assyria, against those who help evildoers. So so verse 2 is actually... um, It's hard to pick this up sometimes, Uh, but verse two is actually kind of like an ironic sarcasm. And here's the sarcasm. It says, he too is wise. The he in this verse is God. God is the wise one. And here's what it's saying. God is the wise one. And and those people who are living in Judah, the experts, the military leaders, the political leaders who think they're so wise and so smart about how they're going to go down to Egypt and get help from Egypt and make it happen. The wise, super smart political leaders who have all the answers. Humanity hasn't changed, right? Like our political leaders are so smart and so wise. They're so much smarter than all the rest of us. Well, here's what Isaiah is doing. He is mocking those people. 
He is belittling those people. He's saying the people who seem so wise are actually not the wise ones. The wise one is God. He too is wise. Like the one who is wise here is God. And here's what this means for us. This means if you are walking through a complicated situation in your life right now, what you need more than anything is not the help from someone else and not some clever idea you came up with. You need the wisdom that only God can pour into your life. And isn't it amazing that God actually promises in the New Testament to give us wisdom? James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you are confused or overwhelmed or not sure what to do or not sure what to say to your mom or not sure how to handle a situation at work, if you're not sure what to do in any situation, you should ask God. Duh. You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it'll be given to you. What an epic promise of the Bible. Like when I ask God for wisdom, he's like, yeah, that's a prayer I'm going to answer. That's a prayer I'm going to answer every time. Can I give you three prayers to start praying regularly over your life? Number one, God, give me supernatural wisdom beyond my years. God, would you do that? We are a room full of young adults, but how amazing is it that God would actually give you the wisdom of an 80-year-old if you'd ask him? If you'd ask him. God, give me wisdom beyond my years. I know I'm young. I know I'm in my 20s. I know I'm in college. I know I'm just out of college. God, I know I shouldn't know how to handle this situation, but give me wisdom. Number two, give me discernment from the Holy Spirit. Discernment is the capacity to see through lies. And so many of the problems in your life stir from the fact that lies abound in our world and you are asking God for the vision to see through them. Ask him for the discernment. And finally, ask God this, give me eyes to see what you see in this situation. Because God, obviously you've allowed this and I don't know why you've allowed this thing, but God, I'm not asking you to change the circumstance. I'm asking you for, to give me your eyes so I can see what you're doing. I wanna see past the surface in this. I wanna see into the spiritual realm here. God, would you help me understand what you're doing? The scriptures are gonna tell us that God is gonna give wisdom to those who ask. And the problem for Judah is they thought they were so smart. They had, they're so clever. They had it all figured out. And God's going, you fools, you have no idea how much wisdom I would pour into your life if you would just ask. Verse three says, but the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those he help will stumble and those who are helped will fall and all will perish together. I can love this scripture. It just says, you fools, like the Egyptians are mortals. But God, he's the spirit. They're horses, these weapons, these superpowers, you think? They are nothing. The Lord can just stretch out his hand. The Lord doesn't even have to fight or go to battle. He just reaches out his hand and things change. There's a contrast being made here, and I want you to see this. It's this, that Egypt has a military power, but that power can be defeated. Egypt has this muscle, this strength, this power, this wealth, but that wealth can be defeated. Can I remind someone in this room tonight that God has supernatural power that is undefeated? It cannot be defeated. It cannot be stood against. And some of you consider yourself so wise, so clever, so well-resourced. Your parents have money or you're well-connected or things always work out for you. And I promise you that if you would drop those powers and call on the name of the Lord, there is a supernatural kind of power that God might do in your life. Can I give you another prayer to pray regularly that I don't think we pray enough in this space, in this church? Here's a prayer. God, I need a miracle. God, I need a miracle. I need you to show up where it says a mighty outstretched hand. I need you to do a miracle. Can we stop asking God for a nice day? You'll probably have one on your own. 
Can you stop asking God for a nice meal? It'll probably be lovely on its own. You know what I want in my life? I don't want a nice day or a nice meal. I want God to do miracles in my life. I want God to show up in power, to show up and to show off. That's what I'm asking God for every time I pray. I'm asking God for miracles, right? Like, so when I pray, if I'm in a financially tough place and I pray, God, would you provide for me? What am I asking? I'm asking for the miracle of provision. Nothing less, right? If I'm in a sticky situation with someone and I'm like, God, I just need you to help me resolve this situation. What am I asking for? I'm asking for the miracle of God's providence, that God would actually supernaturally move in this messy situation and bring it to rights. Listen, when I ask God to save my younger brother, who's far from God and doesn't want anything to do with God or anything to do with me, I'm asking for God's supernatural miracle of salvation in his life. Every time I pray to God, I'm praying for God to do a miracle. Every time I'm asking God for something, I'm asking that God would do something supernatural in this world. And that is something we must pray. Uh, I was thinking about it this way years ago. Uh, we uh, started to notice our, our, our daughter, our oldest daughter, Grace, uh, wasn't talking as much as some of her friends. And so we were kind of concerned, and all parents are kind of concerned, and we're looking up online. Eventually, we decide to go get uh, a screening, and, and we go and get a screening, and we learn that she's totally good. She just has um, a, a speech delay. And so we learned that with a speech delay, when you catch it early, you can really help her progress and move along. And by God's grace, she really has. But we remember that season. We went in and we got her screened. And there's sort of agencies around here that do that. So we get her screened for all of that. And then she qualifies for speech therapy. She's about two years old at this point in time. She qualifies for speech therapy. And I'm working with this agency that does this. And they start to arrange this. They say, sir, okay, so here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to send someone to your home. They're going to do speech therapy with your daughter once a week. Uh, this is how it works. This is what it looks like. This is the usual trajectory of things. I'm listening to all this. And you know what I'm doing as a dad? The only thing in the back of my mind is like, how much are you going to rob me for this, right? That's the only thing I'm thinking. Like, okay, it's going to be hundreds of dollars, thousands, tens of thousands. Like, I'm just like stressing out. And then at the end, I was like, okay, like the one thing you have haven't covered like what's the cost and they're like sir there's no cost to this I was like, okay, uh, no cost up front. Like, no, what are we talking about here? They're like, no, no, no. So like, it's completely provided. And I was like, no, uh, mm, uh. like you're looking for like, you're always waiting for the government to mess you over, right? Like you're always thinking this is going to happen. And so I'm like, there's no way this is free. And she eventually convinces me it's free. And then I go from like suspicious mode into like, I can't believe you would do this for me. Like you are so great. Cause now I'm trying to make sure I don't lose it. Right? Like, and I just, I'm like gushing over this woman. I'm like, you are so wonderful for doing this. And she goes, sir, let me stop you. Stop thinking me. This is just what we do. Like, this is what we do. We, we do this on a regular basis. You, you, you don't have to be like, what? like, you don't have to be shocked that we're doing this. This is just what we do. I remember that's what she said to me. This is just what we do. And I wonder if I can speak this over anyone tonight, that miracles are what God does. It's what he's all about. It's what he delights in doing. Every time God moves in this world, it is supernatural. It is not God just standing back, hoping you figure things out. God is moving. God is present. God is in this room. And child of God, he lives inside of your bones. And miracles are what our God does. It's what he delights in doing. It goes on this way in verse four. It says, this is what the Lord said to me. As the lion growls, as a great lion over its prey, through the whole band of shepherds, though the whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord God Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like in other words, Isaiah is speaking. He's like, I have this vision. Like I have a picture in my mind and it's of this lion 
And this lion is defending, this lion is roaring. And you get all the shepherds in the world together to like scream at the lion, but the lion isn't afraid. The lion's got this. And here's what he's saying. The Lord Almighty is that lion. The Lord Almighty is this raging, roaring lion that is loose in this world. Uh, like I think some of us, again, think God is just kind of up in heaven. Like, I hope she figures that situation with her mom out because that seems tough, right? Like I think sometimes we think God's just kind of looking down. No, he is a roaring lion. He is defending. He is with us. He is for us, and he will not be stopped. Uh, like I think the most famous portrayal of God as a lion, uh, for some of you who grew up on these books, is, is the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I want to read to you this wonderful quote where they're starting to talk about this lion in Aslan. And Aslan is the Jesus. It's the God figure in the book. And here's what it says. They're having this dialogue. And it says, Aslan, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said, said Susan. I, I never thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel really, rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Miss Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's who your God is. Safe? Tame? Predictable? Of course not. But he's the king. And there's two things I want you to see about this lion who roars and rages on your behalf. Number one, that God is good and he will do what is right. God is good and he will do what is right. And here's what that means. Here's where I just want to like temper a little bit here. I do not want us to get into this place where you think God does miracles. And so if I just trust him, he'll do a miracle in my life. And if he doesn't do a miracle in my life, well, that means God doesn't really love me. Like, hear me on this. God may choose to do a miracle. God may not. God may choose to allow you to endure for a little longer. He may not. But God is good. That is the foundational principle we stand on here. When we say, I'm going through something difficult. I'm working through this issue. It's been painful. It's been hard. We have to be able to say, God is good. And and, and listen, if he heals me, God is good. And if he doesn't heal me, God is good. And you might think that's just me speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Like, okay, so God is good. So what what do you mean? Here's what I'm saying to you. If we actually trust that God is doing something great in this world, we need to be willing to go through what is hard in order for God to show his glory through our lives. And that's what our God wants to do. So listen, God is good and he will do what is right. And that is the core principle. We believe in a good God who will do what is right. That is true for this world. It is true for your life. And then finally, the next thing I need you to hear is this, that God is king and he will not be negotiated with. He will not be negotiated with. So so listen, when when miracle talk comes into churches, here's what often happens. It sort of turns into like, if you pray enough or if you fast or if you say this in the right kind of way, God's got to respond. So God kind of becomes this like global sort of heavenly um, dispensary where if you put in enough faith tokens, you'll get what you want out of it. He's like a snack machine where you go up and you select like, I would like the miracle of being rich. And then you like punch it in and like, here's just what I need you to know. God won't be negotiated with. God will do exactly as he pleases in your life. And he is a good God, but do not trifle with him. He is not to be messed with. He is not to be mocked. He is not to be belittled. Like, let's believe in all our hearts that God will do a miracle. And yet, if he doesn't, we have no recourse, no complaint. Like, God gets to do exactly what he wants to do. And here's what the scriptures promise in Romans 8. The scriptures promise that God works all things for the good of those who love him. So if you believe, like, okay, God's going to do this, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to trust him in this. That's what this means. So let's not pretend for a moment that you can manipulate God, control God. You can do no such thing. But he is the king, and he is a good king, and you can trust him in that. Verse 5 says this, like birds hovering overhead. The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield and deliver it. He will pass over and will rescue it. 
So, so it's like Isaiah has this vision, this picture of a lion, and then it suddenly switches, right? Now he has this picture of a bird floating overhead, and, and he's shielding Jerusalem. This is what God is doing, and, and it actually switches from this real masculine kind of lion that's tearing things apart to actually a feminine participle in the Hebrew, which simply means he's switched to this other side of God. Like, yes, God is this roaring lion, but he's also this bird that covers you with his wings. He says, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of that thing you're going through right now, God says, I'm with you. I'm present with you. I'm not going to leave you. Like, someone just needs to hear that tonight. Like, your pain is not evidence that God's abandoned you. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted, that he's with those who are bound up, who are wounded, who are struggling right now. That's where God is closest to you. And and like, listen, I I think sometimes in our pain and in our struggle, what we have this tendency to think like, God, I don't want you to be close. I I just want you to fix my problem. And I get that. I get it. Sometimes I just want God to fix my problem. But then here's what I have to ask myself from time to time. Is that really what I want the most right now? Is what I really want the most, God, to just fix all my problems. Or am I actually after something different? Can I ask it this way? If you had to choose between God's permanent presence and his miraculous provision, which should you want? Which do you want? Because here's my fear sometimes. My fear sometimes is I want his provision. I want him to show up and fix things in my life. I want him to provide for my family. I want him to help my children. I want me to be okay. I want my health to be okay. I want everything to be good in my life. And then if he can hang out with me, okay, that's all right. That's fine. But listen, If I really want God, if I really want God more than his stuff, I'm going to say, you know what? I want his permanent presence. And if he provides for me, great. And if he doesn't provide for me, okay. And if the Lord takes from me my life, you know what the brilliant thing is? That ain't for long because I'm going to rise from the dead in the resurrection. That's my glory. That's my future. That's what comes next for me. God's permanent presence will go with me whether I rise or whether I sleep or whether I rise with him again in the resurrection. This is the great promise of the Bible. God says, I'll spread my wings out. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to wrap you into myself. So here's what I need us to understand. This permanent presence of God that goes with us is the great miracle of the Bible. Like, I need you to hear me on that. God's greatest miracle isn't splitting the Red Sea. God's greatest miracle isn't multiplying fish and loaves. It isn't walking on water. God's greatest miracle, the greatest miracle of all, is the salvation of sinners. That's the great miracle. The great miracle is that God would come to rescue sinners like you and like me, that he would send his son Jesus to die on the cross, lay in the grave, miraculously be raised from the grave, but more importantly and more stunningly than that, that that would actually apply to my heart for my salvation. That's the great miracle of the Bible. Like the greatest miracle of all is that one day he's gonna raise me up just like he raised Jesus, right? Like, 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 what can death do to me? What can cancer do to me? What can being broke do to me? What can drama with friends or colleagues or family members, what can any of that do to me if I know my future is resurrection? Like, that's the miracle God promises me. And so when I say the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of sinners, I mean that even if God doesn't come through in the way you want him to now, a hundred billion years from now, you will stand in glory of the goodness of God. That's what's coming for you. That's what we see here. God is this roaring lion, but this mother who covers us with his wings. It goes on in verse six. It says, return you Israelites to the one you have so greatly revolted against. From that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your silver hands have made. So, so, so he kind of actually throws in this little curveball here. He's kind of like, God's going to provide. You don't have to do this on your own. God's got you. He's a roaring lion. He's like a mother bird who's covered you. Also, knock it off with your sin. (laughs) Like, that's what he says. 
Like in the midst of your panic, in the midst of your fear, yeah, this art, think, think, think about this for a second. There is a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in this army marching toward Jerusalem. And Isaiah's like, hey, could you make sure to return from your sin and forsake your idols? Like, hey, the most important thing right now is repentance for you. Like, this is a stunning thing. You would think he'd be like, the most important thing you can do is get food and water and supplies and run as far away as you can. But he says, no, 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 there's something more important. That's your repentance right now. So so here's what we need to understand in our moment of trouble, in our day of trouble. Um, It's really easy in our day of trouble to get obsessed with our trouble and forget about our sin. It's really easy to get obsessed with our trouble and forget about our idols, And so I want to call you right now. I'm actually speaking to you right now. If you are going through a hard season, a challenging thing, if there's something in front of you that you're just overwhelmed with and thinking about constantly, what I want you to do is take your eyes off that for a moment and turn back to your God, to repent of your sin, to deal with whatever stuff is going on inside of you. And here's why. I need to contrast two things. I need to be clear that you, as a child of God who still struggles with your sin, can I just declare this over you? God will never condemn his children for sin. He will never condemn you. Like on the authority of the word of God and on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, I will say over you, the God of the universe has not condemned you. He will not, he has no condemnation left for you. Like he's not going to do that. But I do need to be clear about something. God will discipline his children for their sin. He will discipline us. Like we're told in the scriptures, he will not condemn us, but he will discipline us. What's the difference? It's my two-year-old son, Noah. My two-year-old son, Noah, can sometimes just be having a lovely day and then lose his ever-loving mind over nothing. He will just melt down and start screaming. His favorite thing is, I want mama. And he's screaming that. And my wife is right there. And he's just screaming, I want mama. And she picks him up. I want you. Like just nothing can console this child. And so he's lost his mind. He's lost all self-control. And so here's what I do from time to time. Okay, all right, time for a break. I pick him up and he flails, but he's two and I got this thing. So I go up the stairs and I don't throw him in the room and close the door. I close the door and I sit in the room with him and he just rages against me. But again, he's two and I'm 230 pounds. So I got this thing, all right? And so I'm there and he's just like raging against me. What am I trying to do in that moment of discipline? I am not disciplining Noah because I hate him. I love him. I'm disciplining because I love him too much to let him walk in his sin anymore. I love him too much to let him walk as a young man without self-control. I am taking him away from his toys and the one thing in the world he wants in that moment, his mom. I'm taking him away from these things, not because I hate him, but because I love him. And I want you to know this, that the God of the universe can and will discipline you in your sin. And that is not to say that everything bad that goes on in your life is God disciplining you. I'm not prepared to speak for my God. I am prepared to say that he will discipline you. And so if you are walking through a season that just seems overwhelming and difficult, do not underestimate the idea that God might just be disciplining you. God might just be leading you through a season where he says, I love you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not here to punish you. But I want you to understand that if you keep going down this road, you will fall off a cliff. And God needs you to know that, listen, a season of crisis should create a heart of repentance. That's what should happen in us. A crisis in front of us, we should say, okay, before I solve this problem, I need to make sure I've repented of my sin. I need to make sure I've gotten into a right spot with God. Here's how the chapter ends in verse 8. It says, Assyria, Assyria will fall by no human sword. 
A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of the terror. At the sight of the battle standards of commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Jerusalem, whose furnace, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. This reference at the end to the fire in Zion, the furnace in Jerusalem, is a reference to the fire that was ever burning inside the temple of God. In other words, God goes, my temple is here, my presence is here, so believe me when I tell tell you that I will not be destroyed. I will not be wrecked. I will not be harmed here. See, this is the end of this prophecy, the end of chapter 31. And I don't want you to miss a stunning phrase in verse eight. Here it is. He says this in verse eight in 700 BC. He says, Assyria will fall. This is stunning. And this is stunning because Assyria is at the height of their mega superpower phase. Like they are the global superpower, economically, militarily, no one's even close to them. Everywhere they go, they conquer. Everywhere they go, they destroy. It would be like talking about the United States of America, imperfect as we are, we are this global superpower. And it would be like this tiny little island nation being like, yeah, they're donezo. That's what it would be like. Stunning. We, we can't even imagine the idea. We can't even imagine the idea that troops would just march through our country and take it over. And yet here's what's said about the global superpower by Isaiah in 701 BC. He says, Assyria will fall. Remember, he is saying this as, show this picture again, as there are hundreds of thousands of troops marching on the gate. Assyria will fall. Isaiah says, no, 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 no. Don't go down to Egypt for help. They will fall not by a human sword, but by a different kind of sword entirely. Now, if all we had was the book of Isaiah, we would be left with the question, well, what happened? Did this army invade? Did they win the battle? Did they lose the battle? We don't have to wonder about that question. We look to the scriptures and we see the answer to that question. And I want you to read how this story ends. Again, they're up against something when they don't know what to do. And I want you to see what happens here in the book of 2 Kings. Our band can make their way up. I want to read to you the end of the story here. It says, that night, an angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. This is the stunning end of the story. The stunning end of the story is that there are hundreds of thousands of troops outside of the wall of Jerusalem. And I'll show you this photo. This is the this photo. <laughs> this, this image that, that the angel of the Lord comes through and destroys 185,000 of their troops. It says in the morning, the dead bodies are piled up. This is dead. This is death. This is destruction right here. This is what happens. This is so well recorded in ancient history that when I actually talk about like that ancient history, this is something that historians have always thought about. And historians have written entire papers on what happened to the Assyrian army in the siege of Jerusalem. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And in fact, they are so puzzled. They are so mystified at how this massive army did not defeat Jerusalem. You know what the going theory is among professional historians? That all 185,000 Assyrians died because of mice. Mice. That's the theory. They're like, well, what happened? There was this massive army. They were standing outside of Jerusalem and suddenly all of them died. And the best theory they can come up with is mice. Why? Because they are trying to deny the obvious fact that the God of Israel is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. The God of Israel is the sovereign king of heaven and earth. And you need to hear me. The God of Israel is the sovereign king over Jerusalem. He is the sovereign king over armies. And he is the sovereign king over whatever you are facing down in your life. 
The sovereign king of Israel is the king over your financial troubles. The sovereign king of Israel is the king over your physical challenges right now. He is the king over your dysfunctional family. He is the king over your education or your job. He is the king over your relational drama. He is the king over all things. The sovereign king of Israel is in charge and he will not be messed with. He will not be taken down. And when he says, I will step in and do something, he will do something as miraculous as sending this angel to destroy 185,000 troops. He is the sovereign king over all things and he is the king over your lives. As we close tonight, can I remind someone that we serve the God of miracles and he's not done yet. He's not done yet. Like this miracle we see in the Bible is child's play to God. It didn't say God had to labor all night. It was a real difficult thing. He sends the angel and boom, a miracle happens. It changes everything. And how foolish are we not to ask for God to do the same kind of miracles in our lives? When we're facing something down, when we're dealing with trial, when we're dealing with trouble, how foolish are we not to say, God, you've done incredible and beautiful and stunning miracles. Would you do it again in my life? So here's how I want to end this sermon. Um, I'm going to end it in a bit of an unusual way. And I'm going to end it in a way that's actually going to ask a number of you in this room to humble yourself tonight. Because if you want to see God move in your life, it doesn't come through you being prideful and arrogant and I've got this. It comes through you humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. I want to ask this question. Is anyone in this room facing something right now? a situation that's too complicated, a difficult thing, a health challenge, a financial challenge. I want to ask in this room, are you facing something down? And here's what I want you to do. In a second, I'm going to count to three. And if that's you, if you're going, yeah, that's me. I'm facing something down right now. It's hard. I don't know what to do. And I'm overwhelmed. I'm out of options. I don't know what to do, but I need God to do a miracle in my life. And I want you to pray toward that and believe toward that. If that's you, I'm going to ask you on three to stand to your feet so all of us can pray for you tonight specifically that the God of miracles would do one in your life. I don't want to promise. I don't want to overhype. I don't want to even convince you that he will in this exact moment. As much as I want you to use this moment to turn your heart toward heaven and ask that he might. If you're facing something down right now, would you stand to your feet so we can pray for you on three? One, two, three. Rise to your feet. For those of you who aren't standing right now, um, if you feel comfortable, uh, if you know the person, you put a hand on their shoulder and we can pray for them. If you don't know the person, just extend a hand. Don't, don't make it weird. Um, but let's pray right now for those who are standing. I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your situation, but I do know your God. And I know he is the God of miracles who wants to show up and show off in your life for his glory and for your good for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the men and women who are standing. God, in humbling themselves by identifying something going on tonight, God, I pray that you would raise them up in due time. Father, I know you know their circumstance. I know you know their pain. I know you know what they're walking through. And so God, would you do a miracle in their life? God, I ask for nothing less than your miraculous provision, your miraculous healing, your miraculous providence. God, that you would move in their hearts and move in their lives and moves in their situation. God, I pray that you would do miracles that we can't possibly understand, that we can't possibly fathom. And God, I pray that that would redound to our good and to your glory. God, I pray we would have the faith to see the miracle. I pray that you 
would have the goodness to just shower it upon us. God, we are an unworthy people who have fallen short. And yet, God, I stand here tonight in this community repenting of my sin, repenting of my idolatry, and asking that in that repentance, you would do a mighty miracle in the lives of these men and women tonight. God, may we see it in our time. May we rejoice in it when it happens. May it be clear not only to us, but to a watching world that you are the God of miracles who fights for us, who is with us, who is for us, who is on our side. So God, I pray over these men and women standing right now. Would you do your great miracles, your great power in their lives for their good and the glory of Christ Jesus, your son. We pray this boldly in faith and all God's people responded and said, amen.